Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. That means one topic. Today, it's Mastodon, the decentralized social media platform. We'll talk about what that means. Um, that a lot of people, um, some, anyway, not a small number, but, you know, a lot of people, uh, have flooded through in the wake of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Uh, something like a million people uh, uh, have joined since the end of October, including uh, Ms. Adams and myself. That is triple the number of active accounts from just a couple of weeks earlier, shockingly enough. Yeah. And as we have talked about, signing up is not exactly super intuitive. Mm -hmm. uh, we had trouble finding each other at first, and then I had trouble finding Amy Scott. And we've had lots of you sending in questions about privacy and moderation, or even just where to begin. So today we are going to talk about how it works, whether decentralized social media is the future, and mm -hmm. what all this means, given our for our public discourse, given Twitter's influence on news and events around the globe. So we have gotten, as is our habit, an expert uh, to make us smart on this. Robert Gale is a professor of communications and media studies at York University up in Toronto, Canada. First, welcome to the pod. It's good to have you on. Ah, thanks for having me. So could you just briefly explain to us what Mastodon is? Yeah, of course. Uh, Mastodon's free and open source software that. I could take and you could take and we can install on our own computers. And let's say I install it on my computer. That software lets me do Twitter-like things. You know, I can make little posts and <laughs> share images and follow people. And obviously that would just be by myself. So let's mm -hmm. say I invited some friends to join my server. They sign up and we're sharing things with each other. But the thing that's really cool about Mastodon is that it speaks a particular software protocol that allows it to connect to other servers. So my little server with my friends or colleagues can connect to another server and another server. So one way to think about it is imagine your server is kind of like a village mm -hmm. and the connection between them is roads and people traffic along those roads and communicate with each other along those roads. And from there, you build a very large network of relatively small social media servers. You know, that's so interesting because what you said at the beginning, that it is a software as, a as opposed to a website or an app. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a pretty key difference from some of the social media we're used to. Yeah, that's right. It's not the same as we're so used to just going to a central site, twitter.com mm -hmm. or the Twitter app or facebook.com and so on. And this system is different. It was designed to be different. Um, because of the concern that if you have a centralized system that puts way too much power in somebody's hands. And obviously we're seeing that now with <laughs> Elon Musk taking no. over Twitter. Okay. Value judgment time. Is it better than Twitter? Well, if you look at my career, I've been advocating for alternatives <laughs> to Twitter and Facebook for a long time. I, I like to say I nice was disclosure. critical. Of, <laughs> I like to say I was critical of Facebook before it was cool to be critical. Yeah. Um, and these days, you know, we know about surveillance capitalism. We know about that these companies are, are gathering our data and they are trying to shape what we see through algorithms. And we've seen the effects that that can have on democratic discourse. And so, um, yes, I would say it's better. And the reason why I'd say it's better is for a few reasons. One is when you have these little servers instead of one big global central network. Mm -hmm. You can have moderation at a smaller scale. 
So for example, if I have a problem on my particular instance, I can, I know the person running it. I go talk to them and mm. say, you know, what's going on here? And we can have a conversation about how to resolve it. Uh, it's very different from the Twitter model where you throw something into some email or fill out a web form and hope something happens uh, or Facebook, you know, because they're trying to moderate at a global scale. And by contrast, these de decentralized systems are moderating at a more local level. Uh, another reason why it's, I think, a better system is because it's not geared towards gathering our data, shaping what we see through algorithms. Uh, it's a lighter system. It doesn't take as many resources. And in my view, in my experience, misinformation, propaganda, all that kind of, you know, mm -hmm. attempts to manip manipulate democratic discourse is not happening in the same way it's happened, particularly on Facebook, but also on Twitter. So are, are there no algorithms that are, that are going to feed up divisive uh, uh, content on, on Mastodon? No, there are not currently. Now, could somebody build one? Yes. I think that anyone who builds that would be pushing against the culture of the whole network and their particular installation would be isolated. And it probably wouldn't be able to pull in enough data to really make that effective. Hmm. So... How then, because you just talked about yeah. sort of this profit yeah. motive the in the information hoovering that some of these other social media sites do, how does Mastodon support itself? Does it make any money? Well, or I guess do are, the servers, do the instances? <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, some people donate their own resources to do it. And yes, it's, it's a really good question because this is not free. You know, a computer server is not a free thing. Bandwidth is not free. And these systems take a lot of storage, which is also not free. And so a mid-sized server might cost something like $80 to $100 per month. And that might not sound like a lot, but it's, it's something. Um, so the way that people manage that, sometimes they set up a Patreon account or other similar you know, crowdfunding account. I've seen servers which require that their members pay a monthly rate. So instead of, you know, paying with their data, like we would do on Facebook, they're paying, you know, five bucks a month or what have you. Um, the, the quote unquote flagship instance of Mastodon, Mastodon.social, which is run by the creator of Mastodon, um, he's got a Patreon account. And from what I understand, he he's raised something like $50,000 per year to support uh, running it. Uh, and there are also companies setting up Mastodon uh, servers. Uh, for-profit companies. Yeah, I got I'm an email sure. from like Reuters Institute. Uh, Dude, you, set that's one so up. funny. That's yeah. so funny. Which is a nonprofit, but I get the same principle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm part of an academic organization that's considering setting up a server and that would be for paid members of the organization. All right, but but look, so on the on the funding thing and on the moderation thing, and, and I, don't, I, I, I hate to be, but somehow I always wind up putting myself in this role of the, the cranky old man saying, hey, your kids get off my lawn. <laughs> it does seem to me that this, the Mastodon experiment, right, depends on the better angels of our nature, of people mm -hmm. paying up. To, to, to enjoy the service, which doesn't really work well on the internet a lot of times, but also on the moderation thing of everybody on each individual server sort of, if not agreeing on a common set of principles, then certainly saying, listen, racism and homophobia and, and misogyny are bad and we're not going to tolerate that here, but, but there ain't nobody in charge charge. 
Right. Yeah, this is actually a problem I've been working on in my research is how can a large network emerge of all these small servers or instances when they have, in theory, very different moderation practices. And the way I like to think about it is with federal political theory. You know, we live in a federal, you know, I'm an American, I live in Canada, Mm -hmm, Canada's mm -hmm. a federalist system as well. So we live in systems where small states set local standards, but they connect to each other through a federal governmental uh, system. Mm -hmm. I think we can think of this Fediverse in similar ways. With, with, um, all possible, with all possible respect, Professor, how are we doing with, with Texas and California in the same federal system, right? <laughs> Might as well be on different planets. Yes, yes. So, you know, some of the analogies break down pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, there's no armies involved. There's no police well, forces, yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a longstanding uh, history in political philosophy of how this exact problem. How do you get coordination and collective action from groups of individuals or small groups. One answer is a federalist perspective where there are shared values. You can kind of baseline set of values across the network. And then from there, people build on top of those baseline values. Hmm. You said fediverse, and Mm -hmm. I've heard about toots. uh, And can you just give us a mastodon vocabulary lesson, like instances and all these things? Like, what does it all mean? (laughs) Yeah, they have a particular language and I I try to be really careful about it because uh, I start out by talking about, you know, I can set up my own computer with this software. Um, That installation in the parlance here would be called an instance. I I tend to use Mm -hmm. the word server because I understand that. Um, Yes, early on in the history of Mastodon, when people were deciding what to call the posts, they called them toots instead of tweets uh, with (laughs) the latest version of Mastodon. here I am giggling about toots. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Me too. I laughed. It's all right. It's all good. (laughs) The latest version, they changed that to publish. So uh, I tend to use the word posts just so I don't giggle too. Um, But you asked about Fediverse, and I think that's actually a really good term to unpack. So we're talking about Mastodon. Mastodon is a Twitter-like system. All these little Mastodon servers can connect to each other. But that's really not all there is to the Fediverse. All these systems speak a same language or protocol. Um, It's analogous to email. So if I have a Hotmail account and you have a Gmail account and somebody else has a uh, ProtonMail account, we can email each other from these different accounts, these different servers, because those servers speak the same technical language. The Fediverse has the same thing. And what that enables is not just Twitter-like functionality, but there are federated Instagram-like sites. They're federated YouTube-like sites. The Instagram one's called PixelFed. The YouTube one's called PeerTube. Hmm. And here's the thing that I find really fascinating about the system. On Mastodon, I can follow somebody who's on a PixelFed instance. So I can see their images. I can follow somebody posting videos to their PeerTube instance. So it's a little bit like if you're on Twitter and you could communicate with somebody on Facebook, which is really very different from what we're used to. I'm trying to even wrap my mind yeah. around how that would, like, what does that even look like on, on a timeline? Is there a timeline? Yeah. So the data gets standardized in such a way that, let me try and think of a good analogy here. Um, when you type up a document in like a word processor, you're typing a bunch of text. 
-hmm. And you could send that text to me and I could change the font and change how it appears, maybe even change the background of the, pa the page. The text is the content. The page color and the font is how that content's presented. So, you know, if you post an image in Twitter, it appears in the kind of Twitter timeline. Uh, mm -hmm. If you post an image in Instagram, it appears in an Instagram timeline. Basically, that data is just presented to you in whatever system you're used to. So if I'm in Mastodon and I see a picture, it looks to me like a Mastodon post, even though it came from an Instagram-like system or a video is the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get that. So what do you think happens? I mean, look, you're a trained observer of this. What do you think happens? Well, I have seen these waves happen in the past, and I've seen discontent with what I would call corporate social media, mm -hmm. Twitter, Facebook, mm -hmm. Instagram. Mm -hmm. If you go back to 2015, Facebook was mired in controversy due to the Facebook emotional contagion study that happened where Facebook manipulated the right. emotional content that people saw in order to study how they would react to it. And people did not consent to that, and there was a lot of uproar over it, but people kept using Facebook. Then you get 2016, you got Brexit, you get the US presidential election, you get Cambridge Analytica, Russian interference and in democratic deliberation. That happens in Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. People got upset. You know, we've had hearings. People kept using these systems. Um, this Twitter moment feels different in that Musk is just so seemingly incompetent that I'm not sure if Twitter has a future. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, there are barriers to entry to these systems and therefore it takes a bit of work to switch to them. And it's, you know, you, your network isn't there necessarily. So I do see maybe Twitter limps along, you know, Facebook is facing problems, but it can kind of continue on. But I'm really invested in exploring these decentralized systems because I think they offer better ways to think about how to be social online. Hmm. Yeah, but those networks that you're talking about are, are a pretty big deal. I mean, one of the things that made Twitter kind of great was that you could discover things from outside of, of your own community. And <laughs> it's, as we've discovered, it's really hard to sort of duplicate the community that you found on Twitter in Mastodon. And also, what is it going to do to our society to have everyone in these villages, in these instances, in these silos? I mean, if we go back to your village analogy, there are people who never leave their village and see the rest of the world. And right. how are they going to know what happens outside um, in, in this structure? Are we just going to become more isolated in our own echo chambers? Yeah, one of the downsides of that village analogy is exactly what you're, you're saying, that there's a cost, you know, physical cost for moving to the next village and exploring the world, um, which is not to say there's not a cost for exploring a network, but the way these systems are designed, they're designed to bring in the rest of the network into your server, assuming that, you know, your, your local moderator wants to let every single thing in and moderators are very good at blocking, you know, hate speech instances for have you, what have you. So discovery across the network is actually designed into it. Even though we have these small servers, we can discover things across the network. And uh, I'll give you an example. The other day I was talking to Radio New Zealand and uh, mm -hmm. talking about Mastodon and instantly I look at my, <laughs> my follower count and it's just .nz, .nz, .nz. Hmm 
all these people mm-hmm. from New Zealand were listening to me on the radio in New Zealand and they were following me. And I started to connect to people who are running their own social media in New Zealand. Like that, that sort of discovery is still possible here. But to circle back to your, your original, I think what animated your question is, if your network is on Twitter and your network is not on Mastodon, making that move is very hard because you don't have yeah. your network, your people. That's a basic thing in, in media we, we call network effects. You know, uh, if you don't have the network there, you're not going to make the switch. So it does take some prompting, some pushing. And frankly, the Musk thing has really pushed people. And one of the differences I see now is a lot of the academics that I followed on Twitter are now with me on Mastodon. And I think that's a, a pretty interesting moment. Hmm. Robert Gale, Professor of Communications and Media Studies at York University and our today's Mastodon expert. Thank you so much. Professor, thanks a lot. Thank you. I definitely feel a lot better about it. That helped me wrap my head around it a lot more. But at the same time, you know, I keep going back to the role that Twitter played in the Arab Spring, and I just wonder how something like that happens and gets the attention and pickup that it did on Twitter in a Mastodon or counter social or, um, you know, any of these other decentralized networks in those environments. And, you know, people always find a way to use the tools available to them, I guess. Yeah. Well, so I think, look, I think we need to wait for it to scale a little bit, right? Because uh, as the professor was talking about, network effects are powerful. Um, uh, so there will eventually be people in the next, you know, big news hotspot who are on Mastodon and, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. I think the other thing for me is that, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I've invested a huge amount of time in curating and, I was just and thinking taking that same. care to, to maximize Twitter for my purpose, right? Which is news gathering mm-hmm. with a soupçon of serendipitous discovery in there, you know? And I don't know if I got it in me to do it all over again on on Mastodon. I I was literally just thinking that as I was listening, because I think about my primary thing that I do on Twitter, in addition to news gathering, um, is it gives me insight into communities that are not my Mm -hmm. own, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you find sort of thought leaders in communities that are not your own, they are often amplifying right. other voices within that community, right. which can give you insight into spaces that you can't really wade into yourself. And that's been incredibly helpful and educational for me over the years. And yeah, the idea of rebuilding that on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. is, I'm sorry, on on, on any of these, yeah. any on of them, right. Take your pick. you know, yeah. and and I should say that we're not like out here endorsing Mastodon no. as the place that everybody should go if you want to leave Twitter. It's just the one that a lot of people, at least in our <laughs> yep. echo chambers, seem to be going to, and it also represents kind of the broader uh, concept of decentralized social media networks. So that's why we're talking about Mastodon yeah. specifically. But yeah, it's I, I had big ambitions this weekend to like really dig yeah. in to Mastodon yeah. Yeah. and do all this stuff. I think I even said I, I was, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, you I'm going to you know, keep at it. <laughs> Whatever. You got stuff to do, man. Yeah. Yeah. And my uncle. Well, right. But, but that's the other thing, right? My investment in Twitter has come over 
I joined in 2009, and and I should be clear, I was among those poo-pooing it early on, and I was like, I'm going to sign up for this, but we'll see what happens, right? But it's now been Mm -hmm. however many years this is, 13, almost 14 years now of taking the time and the energy to make it what I want it to be. And now, you know, the transition has to be made, it seems, because Elon Musk is, is I don't even know what. Transition's got to be, right. It has to be made in, in like months, maybe. And, and who the hell knows? Anyway, so look, if you want to follow yeah. me on Mastodon, and really all it is for me right now is a reposting of my Twitter feed. So if you follow me on Twitter, it's going to be frustrating for you. Anyway, on Mastodon, I'm on, on Mastodon, hello, I'm <laughs> at Kai Rizdal at Mastodon.world. Now, why did I pick the .world server? Just because. Made, made no difference to me. I, I don't know. That's another thing. Whatever. Yeah, I have to actually have to click on it to make oh, sure I, I get mine I, right. I, I, I have my phone up in front of me. That's the only reason I know it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am at Kimberly Adams at Mastodon Online, but I originally had one of those Mastodon.social ones, but then I couldn't log into it and made another one. And so I have to reconcile the two because yeah. um, I actually originally signed up for Mastodon in April when yeah. uh, it first really looked like uh, Musk was going to go through yeah. with the purchase. And that's when I signed up. So I got to figure out how to get back to the mastodon.social one. But anyway, they'll both work. We're going to have all the links on the show yep. page um, yep. if you wish to follow us on Mastodon. And actually, I'll put all the ones I've signed yep. up for in case uh, anybody wants to check out what some of these other decentralized social media networks look like. And if you have a, a good experience with one or another, Mastodon or or any of these other ones, uh, let us know how it's going. Are you finding community or are you going to, you know, stick with Twitter and, and see if you're, you know, the band playing as a Titanic goes down? Uh, let us know. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Or you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And we'll be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. News fix time. Go, Kai. There is a crazy, horrifying, can't look away from incredible interactive story on the New York Times today about Tesla full self-driving mode. 
I don't know what to say other than, number one, we are not getting full self-driving cars for a very, very long time. And number two, and this is actually not at all humorous in any way, these cars are going to kill people. It's crazy. Yeah, I um, I saw one of the many imitation accounts that got set up on Twitter oh, when yeah. you could just, anybody could buy a verification check mark. Somebody set up a mock Tesla account and has oh, wow. just been posting content about Tesla's exploding. Right. Uh, and I have to imagine this is going to get in there too. It is but. wild. They So they mounted a bunch of cameras. The New York Times rode along with the guy who owns a full self-driving thing. It, it's wild. Just check it out. But know in your heart of hearts, we are not getting full self-driving cars for a very long time. So keep your hands on the wheel, keep people. Keep your hands on please. the wheel. That's the right. love of the God. That's right. Uh, okay. Well, mine is a story out of the Wall Street Journal about why mortgage rates are high. And yes, I know it seems kind of obvious mortgage rates are high because the Fed raised interest rates. But it also, this story in particular, gets into the mechanics behind interest rates in a really mm. interesting way. Because it talks about, the headline is, mortgage rates are high because nobody is buying mortgages. So in addition to that underlying interest rate being lower, uh, being higher, the Fed is also no longer buying mortgage-backed securities, right? Yeah. And if you think back, you know, to during the pandemic, or we're still in the pandemic, but during the sort of worst of the pandemic, when a lot of people weren't buying and there weren't a lot of areas where you could sort of get returns on your investment, one place that you could get it was mortgage-backed securities. And so banks were like buying and buying and buying these mortgage bonds and that, you know, helped adjust the prices. And now they're not buying them either. So the biggest buyer was the Fed buying mortgage bonds. Uh, then all these big banks were buying mortgage bonds. And now none of them are buying mortgage bonds, which is another thing pushing mortgage rates up. And if you're ever at all curious to understand sort of the inner workings of the mortgage market and why that number jumped so high so quickly, this is a really good yep. uh, explanation. Yep. yep. So, yeah. Uh, all right, that's it for the news fix. Let's go to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, first up, we've got a voicemail that we got after last week's deep dive on outside money in local school board elections. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm from Wisconsin. I served as a school board member for three terms. Hmm. In that time, we went from spending $0 on school boards to having two-color, double-sided, any paper flyers and radio commercials. Um, wow. I personally never spent a penny on any of that. I know other people spent quite a bit of money. It became very disheartening uh, because we went from talking about how to do good things for kids to how to figure out basic things like uh, can we have boys and girls both in the same health class learning about, uh, you know, human growth and development? It was a great learning experience for me. Uh, I would do it again, but at the same time, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for making yeah. me smart. Love the yeah. show. Bye. 
No, totally. And this is the issue. So many people who want to do good in their communities are being chased out of public service at the very, very local level because of the toxic toxicity of politics, whether they're poll watchers or election officials or school board members. Yeah. Uh, and and it applies also at higher levels. You know, you see people leaving mm-hmm. Congress saying, I just don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Uh, okay. A little news you can use here. Here we go. Hi, y'all. Uh, this is Beth from New York Beth. to the eBay discussion. I use it for products that I like that are no longer manufactured mostly beauty products. So I have a saved search for Makeup Forever Lab Shine color number D16. Wow. Um, and That's another saved search for Verb Sea Salt Hairspray. Wow. They changed the formula, and I don't like the new smell. So, you know, if you're stubborn like me and there's a product they don't make anymore that you want, check out eBay. You could probably find it. Thank you. Bye-bye. There you go. Look, she knows what she likes, right? Wow. And that reminds me, um, there was this perfume I used to love. It was like so great. And they discontinued it. And for years afterwards, I was buying it on eBay. And my mm. sister was buying it for me for gifts anytime she could find it in like the back corner of some store where they just had like a dusty old box or if she saw it on eBay. And, you know, after about Probably a good four or five years after it was discontinued, I could keep finding it. And then, uh, alas, no oh, more. Wow. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. Anyway, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This is Adam Masano from Sykesville, Maryland. Something I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about is that ocean levels rise equally all over the world. Oh, yeah. Like filling up yeah. a swimming pool. Yep. Instead, I learned that sea levels are rising faster in Florida than anywhere else for a couple reasons. The water around Florida is warmer, so thermal expansion leads to greater volume and, in turn, sea level rise. Also, melting ice in Greenland dumps cold, fresh water into the North Atlantic, slowing down the Gulf Stream. Since the Gulf Stream pulls water away from Florida and toward Northern Europe, the fact that it is slowing down leads to higher sea levels in Florida. Thank you, How We Survive, for making me smart. And thank you, Make Me Smart, for helping me survive my daily commute. Oh, that's a good finish. Yes, love a little word I play. love it. Love a little wordplay. Yeah. The, the fact that sea level is not the same all over the world never ceases to amaze me. I'm like, they're all connected, man. How can that not be? But that was a good explanation. Gravity as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And tides and all that stuff. Yeah. At the... At the equator and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, don't forget to send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. Gary O'Keefe is going to mix it down later. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Bridget Bodner, who's working on a kid version of Make Me Smart. <laughs> Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Man, I'm going to go on eBay and look for that stuff again now. You totally should. I forgot all about that perfume. Totally should. Maybe somebody found it and posted it recently. 
Thanks, Beth. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.